Hey folks, welcome to this new edition of The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that takes an honest look at the current administration, and we try to provide thoughtful analysis on the news of the day. My friend David Golernter joins us today. This is a treat. He is a professor of computer science at Yale. He is the chief scientist at Mirror Worlds Technologies. He is a contributing editor at the Weekly Standard and a member of the National Council of the Arts. This is a diverse and deeply intellectual person. He's also a pretty conservative guy. For a Yale professor, a really conservative guy. We're going to dive deep into all things artificial intelligence. If you want to know what it is, today you'll find out. All right, a few things to talk about, folks. Uh, first of all, I want to make a reservation with you for next week. Uh, I am following very painfully this uh, real crisis in the Catholic Church, uh, and I will have more on that for you next week. I want to dig in deeper, read more, talk to more people. We already have a great interview lined up. Uh, when you have uh, a cardinal of the church or a high-ranking official of the church, a former uh, papal nuncio, kind of like the ambassador uh, from the Vatican to the United States, calling for the resignation of the Pope. You've got a crisis, Claude. I think uh, I think you can appreciate no, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It's a, yep. it's a big deal. This is all about the abuse, uh, abuse of children and others. And um, it's it's dynamite, and it's so saddening, so painful, so awful. We'll deal with that next week. Uh, I also want to uh, congratulate the president on another uh, trade deal, uh, very detailed, outlined, uh, outlined in, I guess, a couple hundred-page document. This is the relation with Mexico, the new deal with Mexico that junks NAFTA. Don't master, I'm not master of the details, but looks very smart to me. Looks like... Uh, it's like a pretty good, uh, pretty good idea. Let's uh, let's talk about the whole John McCain, Donald Trump kerfuffle. I'll do my own uh, homage to Senator McCain, but before I do that, let me just say this because I, I was talking to a friend in Arizona yesterday, conservative friend. And he said, "You know, everybody's getting real tired of these tributes to to John McCain. A lot of us really here don't like him much anymore." I, I understand that. Uh, he's been disappointing on a number of issues. Uh, disappointing on McCain Feingold, you know, virtual socialist uh, senator from Wisconsin, Russ Feingold. He and McCain got together on that legislation. Not a good thing, but uh, campaign reform. Um, on immigration, uh, I think his uh, proposal was too loose. Uh, he joined with President Bush, and I'm much closer to Donald Trump. Um, and, of course, that thumbs down on uh, getting rid of Obamacare, putting it in something else in its place. Um, extremely frustrating. Um, and, um, you know, I remember when we had the radio show, Claude, we'd have John McCain on often. Because uh, he always interesting, bristly, smart, pointed guy. Uh, but we had a lot of conservatives call and complain about him, right? You remember that? Yep. And it's going on today. Nevertheless, um, there are some things I want to say about him. Again, let's start with the flaws, uh, because I can't remember who said it, but it's a great quote. A man big enough to be a hero to an age is big enough to have the truth told about him. And um, there are truths about John McCain that aren't great. Uh, the first wife who waited for him and uh, then was uh, not treated well. Um, other issues that came up during his tenure, but I think mostly it's about, you know, his, I don't care about his temper and other things, but mostly about disappointment, uh, 
to conservatives and to Republicans. Um, the tension with President Trump, understandable, given what President Trump said about it, you know, heroes, he became a hero while he was captured, while well, I prefer people who don't get captured. Uh, and there was a big fuss in the press this week about, uh, this weekend about, you know, Trump not stepping forward and saying more other than regrets to the family. But he did at the end. Then he lowered the flag at the White House to half mast and, and said, uh, good things about him as a hero to the country, uh, for the country and of the country. But, you know, I, I have to say it's understandable. Uh, what tr- uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, uh, his enmity toward McCain, not that it excuses that comment about him not being a hero. He's certainly a hero. But I understand President Trump because, you know, his history with him is not as long as many of us. And, um, you know, McCain certainly lobbed a lot of shots his way. Um, you know, they're making a lot out of the fact that Trump is going to the funeral. Remember that uh, John McCain, Claude, said he didn't want President Trump at his funeral. Right, right. So, um, you know, this thing has gone uh, back and forth somehow. Do you have any comment on this before I get into the McCain life here? I think what some folks want from the president is kind of just an understanding of the situation. You know, um, sure, the disagreements and the bombs lobbed at him, but passing of Senator McCain, uh, I think, warrants maybe just to kind of step back a little bit and, and, and just do what you should do, not necessarily out of routine, but just out of respect, I, I think. And, deserves and, and, respect. He deserves right, respect. correct. Exactly. I mean, I, I just want to say a few words because the airwaves are already full with stuff on John McCain. But I, I had a pretty good relationship with him, friendship, and, though, again, disagreeing on a lot of issues. But um, I saw him at boxing matches in Vegas. At Vegas. Mm-hmm. He was usually in the company of Harry Reid. Another thing didn't thrill the hearts of conservatives. <laughs> but he loved the boxing uh, thing. He... Um, uh, he uh, had uh, brought testimony before his uh, Senate committees on boxing and sports. He was a great sports fan. And I remember doing that uh, with him and, and talking to him. I, the incident I remember most clearly, I talked about on TV this weekend, took a, a meeting with me and uh, my son, who was then a junior in high school. And he spent about 45 minutes with my son, Joe, who was uh, going on to Princeton, but considering a career in the military. Asked McCain about that, so he thought he might want to, you know, Go to the Naval Academy, if not Princeton, or maybe, you know, join the Marines. Kane talked to him for 45 minutes, put his finger on his on his knee and said, Joe, if you join the military, the Marines, Navy, Air Force, Army, you will make friends in steel and iron, and they will be your friends the rest of your life. They'll be forged in steel and iron. Never forget that Joe went on to Princeton, Joe went to OCS, was a Marine officer for four years. Um, and McCain was one of the influences there. Another time uh, in uh, Los Angeles at an event for my wife's program, the Best Friends program. You know that program. I know it all too well. Yes, absolutely. All too well? Okay, I'll repeat that. Uh, well, I mean, I know, yeah, you I know, know it very, very well. well. I know very, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Am I in trouble? No, you're not. Anyway, um, we were just standing around talking and I, uh, to other people, and then he came in and recognized me. I don't think he had met Elaine. And I said, this is Elaine Bennett, my wife. He was very respectful. And she said, uh, Senator McCain, um, I wore your bracelet when I was uh, in school. Uh, POW bracelets then back in the war of Vietnam had individual names on them, you know, uh, on the charm. And she wore the one that said John McCain, Captain McCain, Lieutenant McCain, then maybe. Uh, anyway, he was very moved, put his head down and put his head back up and said, thank you. 
Um, a couple of great lines, many great lines in his life. My favorite is uh, they asked him about Woodstock, which took place in 1969. I know you don't remember it, Claude, but you heard about it. You know what it was. Big uh-huh. rock and roll festival, big drug festival, big anti-war festival. And uh, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton was recalling it fondly. They asked John McCain if he remembered Woodstock. And he said, no, I, I really don't have any memory of Woodstock. Uh, really not that familiar with it. I was tied up at the time. Right. Uh, of course, he meant literally tied up in a in a tiger cage in Vietnam. Five and a half years. Uh, you know, when a man dies, you don't remember him for his last acts. You remember him for his best acts, and you remember him for the totality of his acts. And that um, that imprisonment was uh, horrible, but ennobling. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger, and it made him stronger. He was uh, out in, I guess, 73. <clears throat> it was an event at the Cotton Bowl. Do you know this story about Tony Orlando? Do you no, Tony? I don't. Do you remember when Tony Orlando was on our show? Mm-hmm. Tony Orlando and Dawn tie a yellow ribbon around that old oak tree. I do. You remember that? Uh-huh. He told the story about McCain, which our friend, mutual friend Seth reminded me of. Uh, he was sang, sang at the Cotton Bowl, one of the first times the song was heard. And... Um, McCain was one of the, it was an honor of returning POWs. McCain was one of them, about 20 of them. And they all started clapping. But uh, Tony Orlando noticed McCain didn't clap, wasn't clapping. Afterwards, he said, I hope I didn't offend you with that song, sir, but I saw you weren't clapping. And McCain said, well, I have trouble moving my arms from the uh, time of my imprisonment and my torture. And it broke my arm, you know. And he said, but my feet were tapping the whole time. It was, a, it was a great, it was a wow. great moment. It was a great yeah. moment. Seth also reminded me that on a couple of occasions, John McCain said to me, I have read your book, The Book of Virtues, to every one of my children. I have seven children, I think, and uh, one or two adopted children. And he said, and my favorite story is The Selfish Giant. And I, you know, I had forgotten that, but boy, I shouldn't have. It's a beautiful story. Maybe the most beautiful story in the whole book of virtues. Do you know it? Do you recall it at all? No, I don't. Share that. It's a story by Oscar Wilde, and it's about a, uh, just a very quick summary. It's about a, a little boy who's wandering around the garden, and he runs into a giant. And uh, he's frightened, but the giant is friendly, and the little boy and the giant develop a friendship and the giant shows them all around the garden and they visit often and so on this goes on over years and then um the giant uh, grows old and um he uh, a little boy visits and he says well i'm growing old it's probably almost past my time here my time may be up and the little boy said you know he's sad and then the giant looks at uh, the little boy and he notices there are holes in his hands and on his feet as if nails had been put in them and the giant uh, says to the little boy, who did this to you? I will I will avenge this. I will go after them. I will hurt them, destroy them, kill them. And the little boy said, no, the holes in my hands and my feet are because of love. And uh, he then says to the giant, it's hard for me to tell the story. He said, you, uh, you invited me into your garden and, and, and played with me and comforted me. And now I invite you into my garden in paradise forever. And, of course, the child was uh, the infant Jesus, the child Jesus. Beautiful story. I just I don't know if I told it. I don't know if I told it to any effect, but it's better in the reading. It's not a long story. But McCain said, you know, I I, he said I I read it to every one of my I've read it to every one of my kids, and I never fail to cry at the end of it. Um, It is a gorgeous, gorgeous story, and says something about the heart of McCain. All right, take a man in the totality of his actions, and um, as I said on TV the other day, Elaine said, end your segment if you can with this. A grateful nation thanks you for your service. Thank you, Captain McCain. 
You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right. Time for our extensive conversation on artificial intelligence with David Galernter. He is professor of computer science at Yale. He's chief scientist at Mirror Worlds Technologies, contributing editor at the Weekly Standard, and he's a member of the National Council of the Arts. David, tell us uh, about Trump, because you and I were writing some things about this uh, early on to the, the dismay of a lot of our friends right. and colleagues. But uh, all right, I start with the grievances. What, what are the legit grievances against uh, Donald Trump? And then we'll get to the good side. Yeah, well, he shoots off his mouth a lot. I mean, there's nothing deep here. He yeah. always has. Um, and, and, and yet there's nothing unreasonable in expecting a man to to uh, think more carefully when he's president of the United States. And I think he you know, he almost makes a, a positive point of not doing it out of contempt for the people who are, who are picking on him and whining. But unfortunately, whining people are sometimes right. And uh, the office he occupies is, uh, is uh, as, as sacred as an office can be in the light of history. And he isn't doing it uh, uh, justice in terms of his, uh, uh, his his behavior as opposed to his, his policy. I mean, I, I, he's a very demeanor. smart man, needless to say. He knows exactly what the effect is of every word he says. Yeah. He knows and calculates. He, 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 this, is no, this is no accident. This is uh, his way of, of um, thumbing his nose, to put it politely, at his critics. Uh, but I wish he wouldn't do it. I wish he would uh, assume more of the dignity of which he has full command. Um, and I wish he'd remember that conservatives, as well as liberals, uh, view the presidency as a sacred trust and right. one that should be treated with the utmost respect. He could do better, and I hope he will do better in that right. respect. What's he doing right? Well, most other things. I think yeah, I um, I to a much greater extent than the average uh, successful presidential candidate of either party, he has done just what he said he would. Um, he was not uh, posturing and striking political poses in running for office. He didn't deign to do that. He just said what he thought. And therefore, rather than being an artificial set of cooked up positions, uh, his positions were what he really believed and had been led over a lifetime of experience to believe. And he's carrying them out. And it seems to me that the nation, uh, both economically and in terms of its uh, political and military and uh, foreign posture, is in strong shape thanks to his policies. Certainly not the Congress and not the uh, not world circumstances, which are not easy. He's done well, and 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 the nation is doing well. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I, I've had the chance to be in, be with him a couple times, just just briefly. But uh, you know, he is who he seems. Well, that's to good be. to know. I'm glad he is who he seems to be. You know, essay not essay not Vidiri and non Vidiri. Um, yeah, that, that's the impression I've got. I certainly don't know him. I met him a, a few times, and he's always seemed straightforward. One of the least, yeah. I mean, there's not a phony, not an ounce of phoniness in him, from what I can tell. I mean, I can't claim to know him, but I've, uh, you know, most people detect phoniness pretty quickly. And yeah. I think he's a yeah. straightforward 
straight talking character. And, uh, you know, such people are fantastically rare in American politics right, or any true, kind of politics. Sure. That's for sure. Yeah, Connor Cruz O'Brien has a great line about Edmund Burke and his biography. Burke had the gift of always being himself. You know, and I think I think that's Trump too. That's an interesting thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it and, is a gift because it's something young people take for granted. The easiest thing in the world is to be yourself, but in some ways, it's the hardest thing in the world, and uh, it gets harder rather than easier as uh, you know, experience and expectations yeah. accumulate. It really is a gift. I th- I think I, I aspire to that. I think I've achieved it sometimes because usually. In yeah. my exalted positions in government, I was mistaken for security rather than the guy himself. They thought I was. Yeah, the, I, they thought it, I was the cop it, of guarding, per, guarding a the security. responsible position with actual uh, uh, powers at his command. Obviously, I have to think twice about everything he says um, yeah. and everything he does. It's inevitable, yeah. and to be in that position and still not veer too too widely from what you really believe is right. is is much trickier than it is if you are nothing but a professor and so i give him a lot of credit i give you credit and everybody who succeeds in in being uh true to himself in a in in, in a trickier place in life than uh teaching at a, a new england college not easy to do and okay. something i admire okay let's go to th- let's go to some teaching uh, Who was it who said, was it Einstein? Somebody who said, if you really understand something, you can explain it to a grade school child. I don't think it was Einstein. I think it's a newer thing. I mean, it seems to me it's cropped up kind of but I may be wrong. All right, I'm I'm your fourth grade student. What? I've been been following the debate, and I don't understand it, and the audience wants to understand it. What is, as simply as you can explain it, what is artificial intelligence? Well, um, it's a term that goes back to the the invention of computers in the late in the forties. Well, during the war and their commercialization, their emergence, their debut in the late nineteen forties, and people were familiar with calculating machines to do arithmetic. Uh, you know, to do long uh, multiplications and divisions correctly, uh, compute tables of signs and logarithms and stuff like that, to do numerical uh, calculating. Uh, so they knew that, uh, but the inventors and early developers and early researchers in, in computing wanted to get across that, that the machine potentially could do more than that. Not only could it do an arbitrarily long piece of arithmetic, add as many numbers or divide or multiply or compute tables as complicated into as many decimal places as you like, it could also do other things. And it was hard to say what those other things were. It was hard to say what category playing chess should be put into, but it's simply outside the domain of any calculating machine, you know, desktop calculator sort of thing that anybody had ever seen to play chess or to play checkers for that matter, much less to prove theorems in geometry as one of the very first AI programs did in the 1950s. Nobody had ever seen a machine that could do that. And people at a loss for how to describe what was actually being accomplished said that you know about artificial calculating. I mean, a calculating machine is by definition an artificial calculating machine in the sense that it's it's the product of art. It's man-made rather than being a man. And 
and so they said, well, you know, what lies beyond calculating has to say the domain of intelligence, broadly speaking, just a way of, okay. of okay. postponing the definition, meaning not merely handling numbers, but solving uh, a wide spectrum of problems. All right. Take us to the next step. Uh, take us to today. What, what, what's the difference between a handheld calculator or the cash register adding everything up uh, or doing the decimal, you know, finding it to 12 decimal points and what we've got today? Uh, today, the, the the calculator is still important, of course, and and every uh, science student has got one and needs it, and uh, every every working scientist needs one too. So they continue to be uh, important, heavily used machines. And the actual uh, processor chip, so called, the the active computing uh, element within those calculators is capable of running uh, uh, software that you would describe as as AI software. That is, the calculator on your desk could run uh, a chess program or an expert system to uh, write paragraphs about the economy or check someone's prose or adjust a photograph or something like that. The computer is the same, whether you put it in a calculator or you put it in a, in a computer designed for experimental programming. Um, it, 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 what I'm saying, in other words, is it's strictly a matter of the software. Uh, the the hardware, the electronics, you don't need special electronics to do artificial intelligence. It helps to have lots of memory. That is the element of the machine in which you store uh, uh, the products of your work so far. It helps to have a lot of memory. It helps to have a speedy uh, computer that can do calculations as fast as possible because AI software tends to be complicated and uh, to go on and on rather than being tight concise, uh, simply because people don't understand it very well, and one tends to be verbose when one doesn't understand something very well. So um, the machine itself is the same. The software is different. Artificial intelligence is a matter of how to write software. Uh, Any computer will do. Uh, How to write the software is the tricky part. Uh, It was in the 1950s, and it is today. We get... um theme I want to hit here in a couple of questions, but uh, I can't remember exactly what he said, but our, our late departed mutual friend, Charles Krauthammer, was writing about this, we're talking about, and he was talking about Watson playing a game of chess and having yeah. trouble with, was it Spassky or Kasparov or somebody? You know this better than I do. And now, yeah, he, said, right. now he said the, the computer can play 50 Kasparovs or, at a time uh, or Bobby Fishers and, and beat them all. Right. So, so what? So do I have that story right, or basically right? Something. Like that? Yeah, uh, it, it's sort of a disagreement I had with him. There's certainly not very oh, many points with good. which a person could ever disagree with with Charles Krauthammer. But um, he tended to say, "Well, insofar as chess seemed to be so hard." Um, the rest of the whole ball of wax is coming soon. We have mastered chess, and the rest is really, he, he didn't say a footnote, but as a matter of course, passing the so-called Turing test, that is building software that allows a computer to chat, to converse on any topic in English. He tended to think it was coming as a matter of course. I think it is coming, It, but it's not a matter of course. It poses a different kind of problem, and a problem that computer people, on the whole, are less good at understanding. Um, we use our 
uh, common sense six-year-old psychology far less than we ought to. Uh, we know perfectly well that people who go into computer science are on the whole uh, of a different kind of mind than people who uh, yeah. Yeah. who become English teachers or uh, authors or reporters and so forth. And um, there's a deep skill to understanding the, the inner structure of language has a lot to do with understanding uh, how we talk and why we talk and what we mean when we do talk. It's a different skill from being able to do complex arithmetic problems in your head and, and understand third-year calculus and stuff like that. People like to dismiss that kind of stuff, um, but unfortunately, it's absolutely true. Some people are born to be brilliant at calculus, and some people will never be halfway decent at it, and, and vice versa, at other skills and areas. That's just the way it is. And the people in computer science, unfortunately, artificial intelligence requires a deep knowledge of, uh, of the structure of, of language, of the way human beings communicate, of the reasons they want to communicate, of emotions, for example, is a topic that uh, I have been uh, working on writing on recently, it's striking how many books about artificial intelligence, textbooks, because now it's, a, yeah. it's an industry, and there are loads of textbooks on introductory AI, and it's striking how many of them don't even mention emotion, take it for granted that the part of the mind that is relevant to computing is completely independent of the emotion. But of course, we, don't, we never go through a day or an hour or a minute without experiencing emotions. Emotion is fundamental to the mind and fundamental to our way of thinking. And the not to, uh, implicit not boycott, but, but not to AI, right? Right, right. AI isn't that is that uh, in popular but, culture? Isn't that represented by Mr. Spock? Uh, yeah, it it has uh, right. It it has a phony view of intelligence that that isn't a fair description. Even if you leave computers out of it, uh, every brilliant mathematician depends on his emotions to know when he's on the right track and when he's not on the right track. But insight has never been a strong point of mathematicians, or for that matter, scientists, computer scientists. You know, the whole the whole crew never specialized in knowing themselves. But but I, I want to come back because uh, I, I may have lost part of this. I want to come back to Charles. And Watson or the whatever computer he was talking about beating 50 master chess players at once. And then 50, what's the new game? Chinese game? Is it called Go or something? Go. Like that? Uh, Go. The yeah. You know the game? Okay. Um, uh, a little bit. I mean, it's an ancient game, I think. If you, okay. if you mean the one with white stones and black stones and very yeah. complex strategies. Yeah. yeah. And now yeah, the computer right. can do that. Anyways, I remember Charles' comment. He, he talked about this progression of the computer or artificial intelligence and said so, so ended it by saying yes be afraid be very afraid <laughs> is that right? right do you agree with that or not um i have to say i do absolutely agree maybe not for exactly the same reasons but it comes down to the same in 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 his mind why should we be afraid like, why should we be afraid well we have uh, the, the educated population generally has decided to shrug off science and technology and mathematics and engineering in toto. Yep. 
more or less because that's what it's been told to do by by the deans and the presidents and the professors in recent years. It used to be uh, uh, way back in the in in the fifties when my parents were in college that everybody took science courses. Um, everybody took survey courses in science and in mathematics, and the requirements were taken seriously, and um, you were expected to pay attention. They weren't just pro forma. And um, the, the requirements still exist, but now they really are pro forma, and the classes have been the classes have been infantilized to such an extent instead of god forbid that uh, an english major should be asked to do a problem set to solve a problem that actually requires calculating i mean he'd go mad or something like that in fact he's obviously perfectly capable of doing that and might have been the leading number one math student in his high school for all we know but in college we immediately dump people into this intellectual tupperware structure we've been building for so many years, which you are what you major in, uh, in which nobody talks about the liberal arts, certainly not the president of the college or the dean or anybody in, in command of this structure. Uh, the liberal arts has been ground into dust and nobody is interested. And that's why I'm afraid, because so much of the culture has given itself a pass. It used to be people would say, you know, I have a responsibility as an educated citizen to know what's going on in physics. I mean, I'm not going to be able right. to solve the calculations and read the theorems, but, but right, so some of the smart Hardest people on earth are doing this, and they're changing the way the world works, and they're changing war and peace. And I ought to know what's going on. People said right. this. And, so and if they don't know, literature. so if some br- really brilliant person knows what's going on in this stuff, and I don't, why is that dangerous? You know, the danger. It, it, I think, it, it's dangerous. Yeah, uh, this is a roundabout way of saying that that we're leaving very important decisions in the hands of people not qualified to make them. I got it. Um, I got it. We're, we're leaving not... the decisions in the hands of the technical people, of the engineers, of the scientists the mathematicians, and they're very smart, and they didn't ask for the responsibility of deciding what ultimately happens to this technology. We're just we're just handing it to them, because we refuse to think about okay. it ourselves. All right, well, that's so they didn't from... ask for, the, for this duty, but they've got it, and they're not qualified for it. All right, but that's different from the typical, or maybe caricature, of the danger of AI, which is, let me go to space again in popular culture, not, not Mr. Spock, but 2001, Space Odyssey. You remember the movie yeah how the computer takes over and and stops how stops taking orders takes over the rocket ship uh, yeah it's implausible but not completely implausible Uh, the point being that a researcher wants to do as much as he can and get as much as he can out of the software it's not his job to worry about consequences and if he could build a program that pays no attention to you um that has a personality (laughs) of its own a mind of its own great that's a significant achievement in research um i once many years ago built software that uh uh, depending depending on the settings on uh, on the front panel would gradually stop paying attention to you and would let its mind wander and it its mind in quotations, but but at the extreme setting of the switch, it would pay no attention to you at all, and would just sort of muse and muse over its past experiences, such as they were. These things are interesting, but they've got to be done with. And 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 at that stage, the technology was too primitive to threaten anybody. But this sort of technology has to be done with some thought in mind of what its broader implications are, and today, what its commercial implications are. Because okay. if there's money to be made, it will be out there on right, the I want world to ask- market. 
I want to ask you two things about that because uh, that helps. That helps explain. But uh, is this what the debate is about? I've, I've put my toe in the water here. Uh, Elon Musk, Tesla says, oh, it's dangerous. Be very careful. Mark Zuckerberg says, no, I'm not so worried about it. Peter Thiel weighs in. All these, uh, all these really brilliant guys are supposedly brilliant guys. Is, is that what the debate's about? What is the debate about among the big techies, the big thinkers in regard to AI? I think Teal is too good a guy to be classed in this group. Okay, I, I think Teal is a real intellectual and a thoughtful guy. And not a great Zuckerberg, guy. I mean, I'm not a Musk. good friend of his. I do know him, and I don't no, know I, I know him. I know him pretty well. I admire the heck out of him. But. Yeah, he's a, he, he knows what he is. I mean, he admires science and wants to know more about it. And I've never heard him say anything he didn't understand or couldn't stand behind, which is not true of many other gentlemen in this category. Okay, okay. But, um... The um, Musk, it's hard, to, it's hard to line up with Musk, but those, but those who say, uh, be careful, there's something to worry about here, there's something to monitor here, there's something to be aware of right now, there's something to make headlines today, uh, I, I think those people are right. They're not alarmists. I mean, you can approach it in an alarmist way. It's not that we should shut down computer science or, or, or start running to our bomb shelters. It's not a threat right now, but it is something that could well be a threat in 10 years. Uh, if we're stupid and we and we tend to conduct our affairs in a in a more and more ignorant way, just because our young people are, we require less and less of them. As a result of which, they spend more and more of their time doing nothing. Uh, they learn less and less. They arrive in college knowing less. They leave knowing less. And we all know that they how they use their time and 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 we've seen lines of them you know over their 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 phones and their pads and all this stuff they do indeed spend hours and hours so all this has consequences um there is much to be worried about it's as much uh, in the way we rear our children as it is in the threat of technology but those two things work together is it because you you mentioned your own invention is it our ignorance of it and and our, and the fact that we're sort of handing it over to quote the experts so we don't have the kind of equivalent of the civilian control of the military here. yeah you know or, or is it that you know it's hal in 2001 or you know these other new robot movies where the robot robot just takes over and kills all the people well i i don't think the problem is irresponsibility among technologists um it's not that anybody uh i know of uh, wants to build how it's it's more the case of well-intentioned ignorance of people in technology building stuff uh, that may have dangerous implications not because they intend to do harm but merely because thinking about that is not their department and scientists okay. uh, no. observe intellectual boundaries with uh, uh, frightening politeness and care you know they never stick a toe into somebody else's yeah. intellectual area yeah, don't ask me and about so God. I don't, about I don't do God, right? They can do this and that are being taken by people who really don't think about how this will affect the education of children, how the example will affect children, how it will affect the schools and stuff like that. They just don't think about it. It's not their department. Got it. Let's let's then um, another direction, if I could, and more prosaic, perhaps. A lot of books have been written about how AI and its uses and applications will replace us or a lot of us. Jobs. Driver, uh, my friend Sebastian Thrun, you know him? Do you know Sebastian? Yeah. 
Udacity. He's, I guess he's out of that. He's now into the flying car, not just the driverless car, but the flying car. What, what about the policy implications of AI? AI is it going to replace all those McDonald workers? Is that a worry? Is that something to be afraid of? Is that something to to plan for to do policy on? Uh, do you mean in a social sense of it's displacing yes. Uh, uh, yes. workers who have jobs now, or do you mean yeah, in the, the sense s- that machines rather than human beings are in charge of ethical decisions that ought to be a human concern? No, I mean the former, you know, the, the, the that one. That's something Secretary of Labor might be concerned about, you know, or yeah. concerned about full employment. Yeah, you know, we never succeed in figuring out that we never figure this out. I mean, we're always wrong in our predictions of the future and future technology. But insofar as human beings are doing the invention, it comes out okay in the end. Not that it comes out for the best or ideally, but in in the final analysis... When the when the treaties have been signed, humanity so far, mankind has survived, gotten through, uh, because uh, by and large we understand that human beings are the name of the game and not some sort of abstract principle that science might be interested in. If I were if I were the Secretary of Labor, I would say, uh, uh, yeah, we have a, a duty to make sure that jobs that, that our economy is of a shape that can support everybody who needs a job, uh, not to provide the jobs, but to make sure that the economy is functioning the way it ought to be functioning. However, I can't sit here worrying about what the effect of software is going to be in 10 years or in five years, because I don't have a clue. The one thing we know is that there will be developments that we have not predicted. The one thing we know is that we will make gigantic errors that throws everything off. Uh, We are justified in having a fair amount of faith in our ability to come through in the end, but we are are crazy to make predictions about the problems we're going to have. Uh, We're always wrong. We, We just don't know. Yeah, the question for the Secretary of Labor, you said, well, he doesn't know what's going to happen five years or ten years, but is there reason to be afraid or worry that a lot of people who work at McDonald's or other things or computer programmers are going to be displaced by artificial intelligence? Um, I think there's reason to be afraid, but not because of artificial intelligence. The whole bent of technology over the century has been to displace uh, less skilled jobs and uh, sort of push the market, push the market higher. So, I, you know, you... Okay, okay. I, I think, yeah. That's I would, an answer. Yeah, I would be worried about McDonald's level labor, absolutely. But then you're pushing it back. You often push these things back in my direction and say, no, 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 this is really... <laughs> what you need to do, Bill, it's the educational yeah. system, you know. Uh, we've got to educate people better, uh, and we well, do. I think that's absolutely true. And I they mean, need I, to know something know, about... what I see every day. And we need to know something about science. They need to know something about science. Right. And technology. Absolutely. So, because we really can't envision what um, these things will bring. Uh, just a, a very uh, <laughs> example that I heard the other day, it just bothers me. Uses of the Internet. I guess overall it's been good, is that right? Right for for us overall. I'm not so. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Okay. I sort of tend to believe that overall it's been bad. I mean that it does Why? a lot of good things. But Why? pornography, crap, uh, distraction, attention. I- 
Education. I mean, if pornography were our biggest problem, you know, I think we'd be in great shape. I, I think the real danger it does is uh, alienates our children's uh, uh, minds. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy. Children always flow to the lowest level of energy. I mean, do whatever. It's, they used to romp outside, and then they came and watched television, and then if they can not even come out to where the television is but never get out of bed, it's even better. I mean, that's natural for children. So, uh, you know, yeah, it sounds like me in old age. I just, I just want to sit in my chair. <laughs> well, you know, but you see these kids also with, I know. Uh, you know, all they need is a phone, and they've got all day, yeah. you know, not only the games and stuff, but they've got all their friends and yeah. their colleagues are all coming to them straight from wherever they are. So on net, maybe not. I, I remember when Checker Finn and, uh, and John Cribb and I wrote this book, The Educated Child, we were asked about the use of technology in the classroom and assess it, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. We actually came down thumbs down. Down because yeah. we, we said it. Couldn't agree more. It was hurting. And kids weren't using their brains, you know, their minds. They weren't getting smart about things. And I, you know, it's, I talk to millennials and I see him struggling with, you know, nine times seven. You know? Yeah, and and the the painful thing is that we all saw this so perfectly clearly. I mean, you know, we were arguing about this in the eighties. We discussed it in the eighties. You know, it was perfectly obvious that teachers who who worked pretty hard in class would rather. Have have an easier time of it and yeah. you know if you could spend two hours having children play with a computer that's two hours gained in which you can you know read the paper or chat yep. with your friends and yep. Yep. so every, every force was pushing in the direction of uh how about how of about, assuming computers were going to do something but how about this one I, it was jonathan turley i i his column on the in the hill he was talking about it. he may not be in the column but he was talking about it on tv the other day the lawyer jonathan turley and he was saying yeah Lo and behold, uh, you know, whatever you think of Peter Strzok and uh, now Michael Cohen, they have fund me pages. And it says a use of the Internet we didn't anticipate. These scallywags, you know. Right, and, right. But, but, you know, a third of the population or more supports them. And, you know, whatever trouble they get, at least they're, they're going to be covered. Yeah, right. I mean... The things we didn't anticipate are larger than the things we did, and I think on balance, more disturbing. Uh, if you look into the number of localities that rushed into electronic voting without even beginning to understand what the issues really were, it seems as if almost nothing, no damage was done. It's remarkable and miraculous, but it could have been a huge mistake. And the intelligence failures, uh, I will bet, are orders of magnitude larger than anything we've ever heard about because uh, people are careless and uh, too few people understand what's at stake, what's really going on. And um, uh, it's, it's always the case that if you take one person and focus him to a point and another person of equal intelligence and spread his intelligence over a bunch of different areas, the guy focused to a point is going to win uh, because if he spends all his time hacking into one computer, he's going to get in even if he's no smarter than you because you don't spend all your time keeping them out. So it's uh, it's a losing proposition. It is gigantically irresponsible to put stuff online without understanding why we need it online, why there are no alternatives, why this is a better alternative. People assume technology is, is better, it's cheaper, it's more up-to-date, and it's, uh, it's easier for me. 
and and so we've rushed into a situation in which we are gigantically vulnerable. And I hope we back out of it before something uh, huge happens. But Prometheus has come and gone. I mean, we got fire, and we're not going to get rid of it, right? We're not going to get rid of it, but we could change our attitude towards it. Uh, we could change our attitudes change, radically. Ch- chain Al Gore to a rock and have eagles eat his liver? Since well, he well, yeah, the that, internet. That's an attractive idea. I'm kidding. I don't want to see Al Gore chained to a rock. But, no, isn't uh, that you, what they did to Prometheus? Was the yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And, uh, but the, the, if you look at the our attitude, towards guns, for example. Um, every boy used to, when I was a kid, which was not that many generations ago, um, all boys played cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians, and they rescued girls who were captured and kidnapped and stuff like that, and who enjoyed doing that, just like the boys enjoyed rescuing them and shooting their opponents and enemies with cop guns. And and yep. and the idea that yep. it did us any harm or made us violent is, is outlandish. I mean, it's it, only to state it to see how absurd it is. Um, but our attitudes to guns have changed so much that um, young people, especially from the uh, eastern liberal elite or the coastal liberal elite, uh, don't even basically don't know what they are. I mean, they're scared of them. We've had some experiences along these lines. And um, so uh, that in itself is idiotic uh, and absurd and uh, ludicrous. But it shows how dramatically attitudes can be changed. I think our attitudes towards networks and computers ought to be changed, not in ludicrous ways uh, to match the gun business, but ought to be changed to more of a recognition of the danger that's being posed here. And I think they can. I think they should be changed. If you don't mind, let's get into this. Does government have a role here? Should government be regulating the Internet? Should government be telling Facebook what to do or Twitter? It never works. I, I yeah. don't think so. I, it's just not a fruitful direction. Um, it's not a matter of government insofar as education is a government business in a limited way. But I, I don't I don't see that government can can do good. I, now it is true, the government had a big role in inventing the internet. I mean, the National Science Foundation and the uh, uh, the defense uh, research funding agencies were were major movers, the NSF especially, in getting the internet up and inventing it. So it's not as if government research money hasn't been productive. It's been tremendously productive. But the people doing the work are just scientists. They aren't government functionaries. And uh, government grants to responsible parties are certainly part of this, but I don't think government itself is going to do it. But I do think grants are the first step. That is, people have got to sit down and look at what we've got. It's not a matter of making new regulations or writing new laws tomorrow. It's a matter of, of it's not a matter of thinking for 10 years either, but a few months, careful thought. I mean, I, uh, you know, had I wound up as science advisor, which is something I was looking at a year ago or two years ago, whatever it was, yeah, I think I would have, w- yeah, what, what I would have done almost first 
thing has gotten together a panel of a half dozen Peter Thiels. There are not very many Peter Thiels, but there are a half dozen such people. Um, have them sit down, uh, address this issue, um, write a brief report, have a public debate, and get us moving on this. First, get us thinking, because we're not even thinking, much less doing. Yeah. But, but you know, we could do it, obviously. It doesn't mean take me as science advisor. It could be done tomorrow. It ought to be done. We're crazy not to do it. Uh, what's uh, Let's let's end with the parents and children, because you keep coming back to this. What's the best advice for parents? Uh, learn how to do this so you can keep up with your kids and have some sense of what they're doing and, and be in that world so you can, you know, uh, be conversant and maybe, you know, your, your parental authority should be exercised there or put restrictions on kids uh, in regard to this. Um, what do we do? I think of this great passage from Hannah Arendt from her book, Book of Essays. And she had an essay called The Future of Education, I think. And yeah. she said, the one thing we're not allowed to do in the in the world is to surrender in the presence of change, surrender uh, in, the, in, in, in the presence of our children. We are not allowed to say, this is a new world. I don't understand it. You do. We all make these sort of funny jokes about, has, is there a five-year-old in the room to help me turn on the TV? But yeah. you're not really allowed to do that. Uh, right. We can't practice surrender in the in the... In the in the presence of our children. She includes by saying, we can never say to the children, this is a whole new world. I do not understand it. Good luck. You're on your own. Yeah, right. Um, uh, on the one hand, we have a responsibility to know everything that our children do, not know it in the sense of having mastered it ourselves, but we ought to be able to account for their time. We ought to be able to know, we ought to know how they're spending their time. Mm-hmm. We also ought to make clear what's important and what isn't. Computers are, are, are not important. Uh, physics and biology are, and mathematics even more so. Uh, but Judaism and Christianity much, much more so. The history of America and the West, much, much more so. I mean, pa- parents have to sit down and get clear in their own minds what really counts, and not count on the schools to get that across. Uh, uh, because the schools never will, and um, colleges even less. Nobody will make clear to your kid what's important and what isn't if you don't. And you'd better have that clear in your own mind. And there are too many people I meet nowadays, the future parents who are Yale students today, who say, I have nothing against the Bible, but I've never opened one in my life. I just don't have the vaguest idea. You know, I have nothing against Christianity. It's got something to do with some crucified guy, but I don't, you know, I, I, nobody ever told me anything about it. That doesn't go with an excuse. I mean, we we need to get across to people that your education was lousy. We take that for granted. Education is always lousy. But that doesn't diminish your responsibilities as a parent or an adult or a citizen. And there are too few people uh, saying what uh, Ted Sorensen said for John Kennedy, ask what you can do for your country. Uh, it's a good question. And, it, and it, it, you, we used to hear it once every five minutes when I was a child. We've forgotten it. It's worth, uh, it's worth saying Again, again, I think of two quotes. Orwell's, you know, often the first responsibility of intelligent men is a restatement of the obvious. Right, right. Uh, and and Tom Wolfe, recently deceased, right. who said, a wonderful writer. Yes, who said we need to enjoy and engage in a great learning, and then he said, no, not a great learning, a great relearning. 
and our friend and, and, and I think yeah. our mentor, Irving Crystal, who said, we've forgotten the answers to the questions, the most obvious questions that the young people ask. Uh, God, is that right? That is absolutely right. It is the A and the B and the C that we have neglected while we rush ahead to all these fancy, advanced computer graphics and interfaces and this and that garbage, which they can pick up on their own, and they don't need anyway. We're neglecting what's important, but that seems to be the main uh, duty, the main occupation of parents is to miss what's important. So that work has to be done. There's certain work that has to be done each time for each generation. Uh, no shortcut. You got you got you actually got to read those passages from the Bible or the Federalist Papers or whichever. Each time, absolutely. And and parents never want to do the work, and they say, you know, I'm not in school anymore. I don't have to do that anymore. I, you know, I'll just make sure my kid is doing what he has to do the way I did what I had to do. Uh, but now more than ever, as each uh, generation of teachers seems to give up something to the previous generation, and I know as an educator at one of the best colleges in the world that we're teaching garbage and that we're turning out uh, students who in many cases know less than they knew when they entered, um, education, formal education is failing. Uh, it's up to the individual and above all to the parents. They're the ones who, they're the ones who, who set the tune, the tone, and the tune. Sort of irreducible work. I mean, it's it's non-negotiable. You got to do it, right? Each generation. Yeah, I'm sorry to sound so pessimistic about this, but yeah, you know, it can't be done. Of course, I you know, I I know loads of marvelous parents who have. Yep. Who've made the effort, who have taken it on themselves uh, to do what's needed and have done it. And I think in every generation, a minority has seen the necessity of working at this job of being a father or a mother. It's always a minority. Uh, it's always hard work, but we're we're up to it, thank God, at least some of us. Just last thought here. One would think the parents of Yale students would be among the most responsible and that they would have been responsible for providing these basic structures of education education, no? They're responsible in the terms we give them today. And remember, their own education is not that long ago. I mean, they, they went through grade school and college when American culture had already collapsed in the 80s and the 90s. So a responsible parent thinks he's doing right by his kids if they score high on the SATs and, you know, the other the other standard tests and they score high in their interviews and they go and help at the hospital. You know, they do the things that you need to do in order to get into Yale or whatever it is your, your goal is. These are the kind of goals parents have. Um, these are the kind of goals we are responsible for giving them. I mean, we being um, educators at Yale and, and, and professors who supposedly know what we're talking about. We, these stupid ideas are, are our responsibility because instead of saying, yeah, we want people who have learned something in their lives, who have learned how to read and how to write, something about the history of their country and their civilization, that's what we care about. Um, we don't say that. And uh, we, I think responsibility is as much ours as it is any group in society. Professors like to think that at least they don't do any harm. Um, and it's true that the children we see, or the students, teenagers, whatever they are, young adults, get most of their education from each other and not from us, and that's always been true. But we set the tone for much of the rest of the educational system. And the high schools do like we do. Yep. And, the, and the teachers take their cues from us yep. um, as a group, from what, from what Harvard is doing 
in Princeton and Stanford. People pay attention to this. And in that category, we're doing immense harm by by emphasizing the superficial, because so many professors don't understand technology. They regard technology as very important. Uh, they're regarded as all important in many cases, and uh, and that's where uh, a major part of the emphasis on this nonsense of, of the intrinsic virtue of playing with your computer. I mean, this has been a stupid idea since the 1980s, when computers got cheap and everybody had one. Um, it was already a fight, and many people were saying, you know, keep away from this. Um, Al Gore loves the idea of, of buying as many as possible and distributing them all around the country and all around the world, but stop and think before you do that, um, because it has as much potential for doing harm, for doing damage, as potential for doing good, and maybe a lot more. And people used to say, well, look, don't you know in this little PC you can buy for $1,200, there's as much information as in the town library of these three Westchester townships with an average income of blah, blah, blah. And the question is, well, uh, so what? The That information is already available in the high school library or the town library, and who cares? It's no, doing no good there. It does no good on a disk in a computer. That's not the issue. Lack of information is not what keeps children back. It's lack of knowing how to do things, lack of skills. Computers could teach that, but they don't. It's, a, it's hard work. Nobody wants to do hard work, and computers don't make hard work any easier. Thank you. We, uh, we're going to talk all about artificial intelligence, and we did some... We got an example of real intelligence. Thank you, David Glarenter. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. Many Thank thanks. It's always an honor to uh, to talk. That was David Glarenter. He's a professor of computer science at Yale. He's the chief scientist at Mirror Worlds Technologies, contributing editor at the Weekly Standard, and a member of the National Council of the Arts. We have to leave it there for now, folks. We covered a lot today. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.